Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. It's a terrible thing being a biographer, Artemis Cooper has said. One is such a rat. A consummate inquisitor of the talented, Cooper's subjects have included food guru Elizabeth David, novelist Elizabeth Jane Howard, and travel writer Patrick Lee Fermore, whose last book she co-edited with Colin Thubram. She is also the author of Cairo in the War, 1939-1945, and co-author with her husband Sir Anthony Beaver of Paris after the Liberation, 1944-1949. She is the editor of two collections of her grandmother Lady Diana Cooper's letters to her husband Duff and to her friend Evelyn Waugh. She delivers an hour of conversation with Owen Scott discussing the concept of memory and telling tales of the 20th century in a session supported by Heartland Bank. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome. Thank you. And um, I asked... Artemis, how I should introduce her, because I wanted to be fair about this, because she she has a very illustrious background and sort of antecedents and all the rest, and she got quite cross with me, actually, so I thought, <laughs> she can introduce herself. <laughs> so I, I was saying, now, do I call you Honourable, or do I call you Lady B, or, you know, so, but no, she didn't like any of that. No, no, I think Artemis Cooper's quite enough of a mouthful, don't you? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Um, but let's start with your, uh, your antecedents, because Lady Diana Cooper and Duff Cooper, I mean, they're marvellous historical figures. Yeah, they are. People used to say to me, what's it like having such a wonderful grandmother? And I would say, well, she's my grandmother. You know, she's always been there. What am I going to tell you? But she was wonderful, I have to say. She was brilliant. And... Um, She was one of those people who was fearlessly adventurous. I sort of feel that she went through life like a pantomime pirate. And um, she had only to see a sign saying, trespassers will be prosecuted, and she was in there like a shot. (laughs) And, you know, a one-way street? Yes, go for it. (laughs) And I used to be mortified. Uh, She used to take me to the cinema as a child. She had a mini. and then she would park it, usually on a double yellow line, and leave a message for the warden saying, Dear Lady Warden, sad old cripple taking orphaned child to cinema. <laughs> and I said, No, wait a minute, you can't do that. You know, you're not a cripple, and I'm not an orphan, and this is awful. And she said, No, no, no. And she'd put on this awful kind of limp going up the road just in case. <laughs> <laughs> There was a a, a rather lovely thing your father said, I I saw the other day, that he remembered aged three crawling into bed, as he said, with Lady Diana in the morning, and the other side of the bed was still warm from his father, (laughs) and uh, and she was the great educator. Then she would start to read stories to him. Oh, she would, and she did that with me as well. So uh, it was always, you know, the Times Tables, Capitals of the World, and, uh, and Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare, and the Greek myths and legends. No, she was really hot on all that stuff. Very scholarly. Well, yes, but I mean, she hadn't had much of an education. Um, you know, like most girls of her generation, um, she was sort of educated fairly 
haphazardly at home, but she was always a tremendous reader. So it was Shakespeare, it was poetry, which had a wonderful kind of effect on her language. She had a very sort of poetic sort of idiolect. And um, no, she was, she was wonderful, really. Uh, terrific person, but I sometimes used to feel very small and mousy compared to her. There was, there was a flamboyance about her, which was just wonderful. <laughs> and your father, um, he was the second Viscount Norwich. By the way, we don't have Viscounts here. No, sorry about that. No, the, the, the only Do you want some? Well, no, the, the only Viscounts that New Zealanders are familiar with was a type of aircraft that the National <laughs> Airline flew in the 1960s, but... <laughs> Um, but he, he was described as, I'm sorry to hear about his death last year, but a popular historian. And um, how, do you, how do you describe a popular historian? He just wrote, it was almost like a red-like fiction in a way. It was. I think he told stories. He used to say quite proudly, I have never discovered a single fact in my life. It's all secondary sources. And, um, and I think it was probably true. But he did have the most wonderful style, uh, very, very easy to read. He always managed to get the moment of drama. Um, and so he was a, a wonderful writer, so, a natural. But, but, but words and storytelling really runs in the family. So. It does a bit. So when did you decide that you wanted to be a biographer? Uh, well, I didn't really decide at all. I think as I was growing up, I rather wanted to be a painter, but I was pretty rotten at that, really. Um, and then um, my, I think it was, yes, that's right, Philip Ziegler was doing a biography of my grandmother while she was still alive. And he asked me to write down memories and whatever, and I wrote a great long screed for him then. And then after her death, uh, he was also a director of Collins, and he asked me to edit my grandparents' letters to each other. So that was sort of how I got into it. If we get time, maybe we can sneak in a letter later, we'll see. Yeah, but, sure. But uh, with the, the whole, from moving on from editing the letters and moving into biography, the first one being Elizabeth David, I... That's right. Well, I'd written, I think there were sort of two books before that. The first was Cairo in the War, which yes. was about Cairo in the Second World War. And, uh, and then biography, yes. I mean, that was my first, uh, the first biography was indeed Elizabeth David, the cookery writer. And I was asked to do that. Uh, and it was very odd. It was the first time that um, I'd ever worked in this field. And I didn't realize that um, when I accepted, because I, I, I knew a bit about Elizabeth David because of, she was in Cairo during the Second World War, so I had tried to uh, write a little bit about her life then. And I had one really terrifying conversation with her on the telephone. And at the end of it, she'd run rings around me telling me this story about a whole lot of people I didn't know and had never heard of and a revolving door of Shepherd's Hotel. So I was totally lost. And then at the very end, I said, well, can I come and see you? And there was a velvety silence. No. <laughs> Oh, I was sort of nearly destroyed at that point. <laughs> anyway, so when they asked her literary 
uh, executor asked me to write the life, I thought, yes, I'm going to find out what happened in Cairo, <laughs> which sure enough I did. Um, but it was a, a lovely, a lovely book to write, although we're, she was not a happy person. Really. We'll, we'll come back to her later, I think. Was, mm. um, before then, we'll just briefly touch on, if we may, a certain gentleman by the name of Patrick Lee Firma. Mm. And, and, but all of your, uh, the people that you've written about, it seems like a cobweb of characters and in, involving Cairo. You've got Patrick yes. Lee Firma, you've got Elizabeth David. You, uh, it, it, all these characters seem to know each other. Yes, Lawrence I don't think Dull. Elizabeth, yes, Elizabeth Jane, oh yes, subtly Elizabeth David, Patrick Lee Firma, Lawrence Durrell. I mean, there was a, it was a very, very tightly knit little group. Yes. Um, perhaps loosely knit, actually, more than tightly knit, but anyway, there they all were, having fun. Now, you're doing a session on Patrick Lee Firma, so we'll, we'll not talk about him too much, even though I'd love to. <laughs> Matinee Idol good looks, uh, just boy's own story, oh, yeah. uh, just extraordinary. Yeah. You, you knew him well because he was a friend of the family. and everything. He was a friend of the family, and um, originally um, it was uh, Anthony who'd written a book about Crete, and um, this is my husband, Anthony Beaver. He'd written a book about Crete, the battle and the resistance, and Paddy had been very, very helpful on that, and they talked a lot. And so Anthony suggested it, but I don't think Paddy wasn't quite ready for it then. Uh, and so there was no response to Anthony's letter. And then a few years later, he was sitting next to Paddy's wife, Joan, and she said, when are you going to start Pad's biography? And Anthony didn't realize he'd got the job even. <laughs> but by then, he was into Berlin, he was into um, his own uh, very different career. And so he said, well, why doesn't Artemis do it? So in the end, um, I ended up doing it. And it was the most extraordinary, wonderful opportunity of my entire career. Although I spent quite a lot of time at the beginning thinking, this is terrible, I'm completely over-promoted, I don't know anything, I'm gonna to have to work so hard as, I just panicked. But it worked out all right. So ju just explain very briefly what uh, Paddy did, aged 18, 19? Aged 18, he walked from um, Holland, the Hook of Holland, Rotterdam, to the city that we know as Istanbul, but he always called by its Greek name, Constantinople. And it took him about a year and a half. And um, there's a long bit in the, the summer uh, where he's, he's sort of passed like a badly wrapped parcel from one sort of lovely house in Transylvania and Eastern Hungary, well, Eastern Hungary first and then Transylvania, and across Transylvania. Uh, and he goes, he sees this sort of, which is a world that he's very, very fond of, this kind of dying aristocratic world. And then uh, he meets this extraordinary woman who's a, a, a Romanian princess. And then, during the war, sorry, did you want me to go on? Um, <laughs> no, I might have to During the war, <laughs> yes, exactly. He goes and kidnaps the German general then. Yeah. He does, yes, but prior to that, I mean, we're talking 1933, 34, yeah. mm. and uh, it, it was a very particular time, obviously. Well, it was, it, going through Germany, yes. And I thought that maybe, would you like to read... Of course, let me just grab some incredibly heavy jug Yes. There we are. Would you like some? Oh, of course. Thank you so much. Sorry about this. It's very Let's hard just to get, get the staff, to be honest with us. I know. Yeah, I can't get good butlers these days. I've, I've lost my thing here. What have you lost? This. It's, oh, it's come you? off. Well, it's all right. You just 
I should say, come <laughs> off. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> okay. So uh, can you remember what the, the, the well, section? I think so. Yeah. I think so. We'll have a go at it anyway. Uh, so Paddy is now in uh, Heidelberg. Yes, Heidelberg. Um, and he's at this inn called the Red Ox. Back at the, uh, back at the inn, sitting with Fritz, who's a young man, a young student who's befriended him, in the early stages of the New Year's Eve festivities, he was brought up against darkness of a different sort. So, ein Englander. A fair-haired young Nazi came up to the table where he and Fritz were sitting together. England, he said through gritted teeth, had stolen Germany's colonies, stopped her from having a proper army or a fleet, and was run by Jews. Fritz was embarrassed and apologetic. You see what it's like, he said. Although he was walking through Germany at one of the most significant moments in its modern history, Paddy's head was full of the romance of Germany's past. If only I'd had less of a medieval passion and more political sense, he admitted in a, in a notebook entry 30 years later, I would have drunk in, sought out so much more. But the Nazis he spoke to were very interested in talking to an Englishman. So, what did he think of National Socialism? And here he was on solid ground, even though he couldn't move very far off it. He said he had three objections, the use of concentration camps, the burning of books, and hatred of the Jews. For the keen Nazi, the first two objections were easily dealt with. The camps held only a few Jews and communists whose fates were dismissed with a shrug. As for the books, that's what seditious literature deserved. And how could he be so blind to the threat posed by the Jews? Their aim was nothing less than world domination to be achieved by a devilish combination of Bolshevism and unfettered capitalism. Even Paddy could see the contradiction here, but as he put it, this illogical sequence of ideas had to be presented in a kind of logical disguise. Each step must be marked with the didactic blow of the forefinger on the table. Each idea defined and put into a small labelled box and agreed to, nicht wahr, and a nod, also, before moving on to the next. I had not a chance of winning in any of these colloquies. I could only stonewall. There was always some handy slogan of Hitler's to deal with everything one said. Der Führer sagt, they would begin. Or sometimes, with bold familiarity, der Adolf sagt. This inability to get through the fortress of Nazi ideology was echoed by another student traveling in Germany at this time. Daniel Guérin was a young communist, far more skilled in political debate than Paddy, who recalled his experiences in a book called La Peste Brune, The Brown Pest. My impression, he wrote, is that this is an absolutely closed world with which no contact is possible. What's the use of talking? What we say would no longer be understood. Thank you very much. I think that the significance for me of that passage was it's, it's almost happening again. It is. In Europe, I mean, the, the, the rise of authoritarianism. And, yes. Uh, you know. And the rise of just divisions. I mean, we see in England now a country completely divided. Uh, between the sort of Remainers and the Brexiteers. And it's very, very scary because, 
you can hardly sort of, uh, it's very difficult to have a kind of logical, reasoned, calm debate about it. Everybody is so... Doing the didactics. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of that. Yes. That's, uh, and, yeah, well, there we it are. It was a bit it's scary, I think, yes. But um, Could I just ask, was Patrick Lee Firmer a misfit? A misfit? Um, I suppose in some ways uh, he was a misfit in so far as um, I don't think he would have ever fitted. I mean, I think when he... When he left, uh, when he finished his training, um, his, uh, he had trained in the intelligence corps. Uh, and I think this was just before, that's right, it's the end of his training with the guards depot. And the chap there who finished his training said, this man will never make a decent regimental officer. And it was absolutely true, because he couldn't really obey rules. He was uninstitutionalizable. Uh, so from that point of view, it, the, the Second World War given the way that it played out, found exactly the right role for him. But I think the thing about Paddy was that he was always willing to live the life of the artist. By that I mean, you know, he didn't mind if he didn't have any money. Um, and he could use his charm, usually, to find a roof over his head for the knife. And um, so he was willing to put up with an awful lot of discomfort. Um, just to carry on doing what he felt he was born to do. And I suppose from that point of view, all artists are misfits and have to do the only thing they can. Oh, he's an absolute original as a character, wasn't he? He certainly is. Um, <clears throat> I'd love to talk about him more, but uh, can't you are doing a session on him? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> now we move on to two women, two very particular women. And uh, Elizabeth David and... Elizabeth Jane Howard, may I say that they were strumpets. Oh dear, <laughs> really? Well, they were scholarly strumpets, really. Well, all right, well, they were free women. Don't you think that sounds better? <laughs> Give me a, yay, yay. <laughs> no, admir admiration, but it was just, it, they were both running pretty wide portfolios, weren't they, at the time? Well, you can put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, yeah, so, um, but let, let's start with Elizabeth David. And she said, I'm not, re uh, not a writer, really, a, only a self-made one. You, you said you didn't meet her, mm. but you had access to her papers. I did. I had, I was... Um, I was uh, asked to do the job by her, um, by her literary executor, who's called Jill Norman. And Jill Norman was married to a wonderful man called Paul Bremen, who had archived the entire lot of Elizabeth David's papers that were in a sort of wonderful room, uh, all in immaculate folders, completely done. I mean, a sort of a dream of an archive. And all I had to do was uh, go through it. And uh, Jill put me in touch with family and friends. Although it wasn't until I had actually signed the contract that I realized that um, there was a great divide and I was on one side of it. And the divide was Elizabeth David had never had children, but she had some nephews by one sister and some nieces by another sister. And she liked the nephews and she didn't like the nieces. And so I was the, uh, as it were, the instrument of the nephews who held the copyright. 
But somebody else had already started a book called Lisa Cheney, and she was well underway with it, and she would come out first. And it was suddenly very, very odd. You were suddenly in the middle of an enormous kind of family tensions that you weren't aware of. But that's the lovely thing about biography. You get to live other lives. You do. I think you said something about that. There was a quote. Uh, and uh, if I could find I think it. I, th I think I said something like, it's the closest you can get to living another life. Yes, I, it was. And, and, it, and I think that's true because you have to... People talk about, you say, how can you be objective? Well, I, I think it's just as important, actually, to get inside another mind, another skin, another heart, another gender, if you have to. But it's got to be done. Because if you can't feel that person from the inside, how can you? How can you write about them? Well, I, I really felt that with the biographies of Elizabeth David and uh, also uh, Elizabeth Jane Howard, that you, you were such a good interpreter of emotions and fragility. And uh, they were biographies that a man would have, I don't think, would have had the insight to, oh, to write. Henry James could have done it. So, <laughs> but um, so now let's let's talk a little bit about the adventures that Elizabeth David had because she was so brave. I think it's she was. I think she was one of. I think a lot of uh, her kind of bravery was driven by a kind of anger and frustration, which often, just very often, comes from being far more intelligent than most of the people around you. And um, so she started off. I mean, she had to. She came from, you know, a wealthy family. Her father had been MP for Eastbourne, but actually when he died, there wasn't much money left for one reason or another. And so she had to make her way in the world. She tried to become an actress, but she wasn't very good at that. But it was while she was being an actress that um, she met this character called Charles Gibson Cowan. And they set off in the summer of 1940, I think it was. No, it can't have been, because the... Uh, no, it must have been 39. Uh, they set off in about May 1939 to go to the Greek islands. And then... Um, in a boat, in a in, little yes, boat. Yes, in, in a tiny little boat called the Evelyn Hope. Um, and that was impounded as soon as Italy joined the war. And then they made their way sort of by train and various other things. And they lived in Greece and on this sort of little island called Syros. And I think I actually went and found her house on Syros, which was very exciting, on this little beach. And, um, and that's where she learnt the beginnings of the sort of Mediterranean cooking, because that's all there was, the salt fish, the local cheese, the sort of sharp wine, the, uh, and, you know, she and the vegetables, whatever she could get. And she started cooking there. Uh, she'd always, I think, had a bit of a, uh, a taste, a palate, but it was growing. And then in Cairo, it, that really did develop. But it was so funny, because I remember the first cookery book I ever bought was Italian Cooking, which, to tell you the truth, is rather an ambitious beginning. I also bought a far better book for my level, which was Delia Smith's very first book, which was called How to Cheat at Cooking, which actually <laughs> I used a lot more, I have to say. It was all about how to smash up digestive biscuits with butter and then slam them in the bottom of the thing to make pastry. It was brilliant. Anyway. When's your um, cookbook coming out? Sorry? When's your cookbook coming out? My cookbook. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, well, that, I don't know. That's, but it is a possibility. Anyway. Uh, but in Cairo, Elizabeth Davis, she, she... Yes, then she has this wonderful description of Middle Eastern food, which a lot of it is sort of... Um, 
you know, ringing the changes on a number of things, whether it's chickpeas or aubergines or lovely fresh vegetables. There's the freshness, the colour, the robust taste that she adored. Which in, when she was back in England, yes. back in London, mm. which was just uh, a country under rationing. Absolutely, it, but it was kind of worse than rationing. Yes. She describes this kind of awful, you're jolly lucky to get it, so, you know, complaining is not possible. And then there's this lovely bit where she writes, she spends the hideous winter, it's very, very cold, of 1946-47, in a tiny little hotel in um, Hay-on-Wai. And the food is completely awful, and it's slammed down in front of you with a sort of mean kind of aggression, sort of daring you to complain. And, um, and of course, people didn't complain. You know, they, they, they'd been... The war had really ground in. There was everything was grey. You know, people had kind of lost the. They couldn't see colour or anything. There wasn't any colour. But she, this is all she could remember. And there's a wonderful passage where she says, "I realised that to write, even to write down words like almonds and lemons and aubergines, and these were dirty words I was writing down. And there was this rage that fueled her." And so her first book, Mediterranean Cooking, at a time when rationing, you know, your meat ration was about an ounce a week. She has a recipe in that for stuffing a whole roast sheep. (laughs) And so this was gastro porn of a high order. And of course, people adored it. It's exactly what they wanted. Could could we just uh, briefly talk about, um, there were a couple of very important people in her life. Well, first she had a a marriage to a man called Tony David. Yes, yes, and, uh, Lieutenant you, Colonel Anthony David. Can you um, remember George de Manasse's comment about that marriage? Oh, it's something about uh, the racehorse. It's, it was like a horse marrying a fish. Yes, like a horse marrying a fish. <laughs> Poor thing. I mean, he was way out of his depth, and the trouble was, she has a, she has a, a line there where she says something like, um, a woman in our... Generation. I think this is when she was now writing for magazines and she's writing her cookery things for Harper's Bazaar. But she says, you're not taken seriously unless you're married, which was pretty tragic. But then having left Charles Gibson Cowan, um, she thought she had to get married in order to be taken seriously. And Lieutenant Colonel Tony David absolutely adored her. I mean, this was unconditional love. It really was. But I'm afraid he just wasn't her intellectual equal. No. And I think, I have an awful feeling she probably sort of semi-destroyed him. Um, She was powerful. Yeah, she was. But Norman Douglas and... Oh, um, Norman Douglas, you see, he taught her a lot of... He had this wonderful thing, he inscribes a book to her saying, always do what you want and, you know, let everyone else go to hell. Basically. And Peter Higgins, too. And Peter Higgins. Well, you see, Peter Higgins... She was Higgins, in love with him. She it? was very much in love with him. And he had always told her, this is much later on in her life, and she's... French provincial cooking uh, is dedicated to him. And soon after she'd written that book, he had always told her that they couldn't marry because he was Catholic. And then he goes off and marries somebody else. And that really, that, that almost did destroy her. She had a cerebral hemorrhage and was very, very ill after that. And a combination, you know, of too much wine and sleeping pills. And that's when I realised, I didn't realise it until later, but alcohol, with which I have a 
deep and meaningful relationship. Um, alcohol, if you drink for misery, it's a terrible thing. It really drags you down. If you drink for joy, though, it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Paddy, lived to 96, always drank for joy. And the smoking... Oh, yeah, well, he was no longer on the weed by the time I met him, but, um, yeah, he... Uh, he, was, he was amazing. He was back But, of course, you see, the cigarettes, and this is something in Anthony's book, too, that I think Paddy told him, which was that uh, when you're very hungry, cigarettes will, um, will dull the pain, will dull the pangs. And... In Crete, I think they used to sort of, people would say, well, how far is such and such a village? And they'd say, oh, it's five cigarettes away, or it's 20 cigarettes away, or whatever it was. <laughs> Shall we talk a little bit about Elizabeth David, I mean, Elizabeth Jane Hello. Howard? Mm. Um, again, running a wide portfolio. I mean, first married to Peter Scott. That's right, yeah. Who was the son of Robert Falcon Scott. That's right, he was, and um, that should have, that was a marriage wrecked, as so many marriages were, by the Second World War. Um, he had, you know, he was intensely busy, he was um, putting together this sort of, um, uh, this unit uh, using little boats, and um, he was a great, great sailor, and they married, uh, in the war, early on in the war, and he took her to the Isle of Wight, which was where he was doing all this work, and she was left alone in this hotel all day um, with nothing to do. And when she went outside, remember, she's very beautiful, um, there's nothing but soldiers on leave, making her life a misery, you know, sort of with the catcalls and bottom pinchings and God knows what else. I mean, it was hell. And I think then, of course, he becomes this wonderful, well, he was already a brilliant ornithologist and painter. And if only there had been more animals and birds in their lives. She adored animals and birds, but there weren't enough. It was all about guns and boats at that stage. Sad. It, uh, there was a, she, she had an affair with Peter Scott's, uh, well, her brother-in-law, yeah. Waylon. Yes, mm, she did. And the, it seemed to have been dealt with with equanimity by all involved. I mean... Yes, I think Peter sort of understood. Um, also, I think she was a very, very sensual person who didn't really feel alive unless there was a man in her life. And Peter was actually bisexual. Um, and I think he, you know, he sort of realized that they were perhaps incompatible. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, he was very understanding. And perhaps on her part, you know, it was as much a cry for help as anything else. Yes, but they remained friends. The war friends. did terrible things to people, you it's know, all kinds of weird stuff happened. Uh, she, then the, all the, these luminary characters that came into oh, her yes, life. Oh yes, her, her, her stamp album. Mm. Sorry? Her stamp album. I always think of it. <laughs> Actually, she did. There was a great friend of mine, Selena Hastings, another uh, biographer, far better than I am. Anyway, she, uh, she said, now you mustn't miss Jane's rogues gallery. And I said, gosh, where is it? She said, it's in the bathroom. And sure enough, it was. She had pictures of all the men in her life around her bathroom. <laughs> How large was the bathroom? Sorry. Uh, it, was, it was a substantial room, yes. 
But uh, Michael Behrens, Arthur Kersler, Laurie Lee, Cecil Day-Lewis. Mm. So uh, these were... And Cecil Day-Lewis, of course, that was her best friend's husband. Exactly. So that was, yeah. It's, I, because we, uh, we were sort of brought up to think that the English were really quite uptight. And, but yeah. it doesn't, no, doesn't seem sort of, to be the case. No, I don't think so. They pretend to be. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, her, um, would you say that her novels really were quite autobiographical? They're tremendously autobiographical, yes. They're, they're, they're usually, they're interesting. And I, I call the novel A Dangerous Innocence because she has an ability to romanticize herself and fantasize about herself, which is actually even better than most of us can manage. And, um, but... This, the, a lot of her novels can sort of bring in a kind of ingenue character who is an innocent, who then acts as a kind of catalyst. So you usually have, let's say, two couples, and um, the men both fall in love with the ingenue, and she doesn't really realize the damage that she's doing, but she acts as a catalyst on the other relationships. And that was very often a, a kind of a pattern. Do you think that she considered herself an ingenue herself? Yes, I think she did. I think she really felt um, that there was a kind of innocence there that had been, in a sense, she'd been robbed of it. Um, but at the same time, I think the, the, the key to her, she was, by the way, I had five long interviews with her before she died. And... Um, uh, I had suggested doing her biography. I think she was very interested in the whole process. Um, and then she not only opened up her address book to give me the names and telephone numbers of her family and friends, she also, and I, I really hope I'm the only biographer to have done this so far, she gave me the numbers of her psychotherapists. <laughs> and the psychotherapists, I remember there was one in particular um, and she said, I so disapprove of this. You shouldn't even be here. What am I doing? You know, if Jane hadn't told me to talk to you, you really wouldn't be here. And I said, well, you know, anyway, the upshot was she gave me this wonderful, the key to Jane, which was she said the thing about Jane is that we all have something to put love in. And when you have something, you... If you can hold love, to know yourself loved, that is the position of security. Now, many times in life, the basket gets broken, whatever reason. And however much love you have, it keeps pouring out. And sometimes you can mend it again. But with Jane, that basket was almost built broken. She felt that her mother had never loved her. And somehow, so the more love she had from a man, from anyone, from a friend, the more she wanted. And that's why, in a way, she, she pushed people away, because she wanted so much of them, because this, this thing, this basket to hold love was, was, was broken, and it all just went through. And that was, to me, the most wonderful description and somehow it was like suddenly turning a, a kaleidoscope and everything is in a different shape. And I suddenly saw, you know, as it were, this, this, this insight which really was tremendously important. Did you like her? 
I did. I thought there was something craggy and heroic about her. She was very funny, too. Because she was very shy, wasn't she? I mean, well, she wasn't, she, she was. wasn't, yes. I think she could be shy. Like many shy people, she could also be quite sort of cutting and imperious. And uh, yes, she could be shy, but she could also be, she could also sort of drop verbal bombs. <laughs> and uh, when she felt like it, and just sort of sit back and watch the ripples. Would you like to just read a, a short passage mm. here? Oh, yes, that's, that's the... Yes. Yeah. Uh, in her memoir, Jane says she has very, recollection, very little recollection of 1955, a turbulent year in which she had affairs with Arthur Kersler, Laurie Lee, and Romain Gary, and began her unhappy entanglement with Cecil Day-Lewis. On some primordial level, she felt that having made the painful break from Michael Behrens, she deserved to find real love, and there seemed no reason why she shouldn't. She had looks, class, and style of the kind that men like to be seen with, while for anyone looking for more wifely talents, she was also an enthusiastic cook, a promising gardener, and loved entertaining. What she hadn't taken into account was her own nature a combination of insecurity and shyness, a tendency to romanticize both situations and herself, and an overpowering need for attention and affection. It seems a very good summary, I think. Yeah, it wasn't bad, was it? Yeah, very good writing, if I may say so, yes. <laughs> um, can we touch on, just briefly, uh, her relationship with Kingsley Amos? Because yes. that was... That was another of those ones. I mean, it begins as this kind of explosive. They, they met at the Cheltenham Festival. She was actually the director of the Cheltenham Festival. And um, she had got together a panel to discuss sex in literature, which was being sponsored by the Sunday Times. And um, she had Carson McCullers, and I can't remember who else, various people. And then suddenly at the last moment, the Sunday Times say, oh, and by the way, uh, Kingsley Amis, we've invited him. And she, you know, you get, oh, you're the director of the festival, you've got this panel together, it's all working nicely, and suddenly the sponsors say, right, we're, we're parachuting somebody else in. She was furious, but there was nothing she could do, and in fact, he was brilliant, and everything was uh, okay. And then they sat next to each other at dinner that night, and I'm pretty sure that they... Gone. I mean, she said they went to bed very late, which could be code for they ended up on sofa. And, um, and anyway, then it, so this affair starts. He's, he's married to a woman called Hilary Bardwell, Hilly, who was the mother of Martin Amis and two other children, Philip and Sally. And they are all about to go out to Mallorca, where he's, he's, he's finally going to... This is Kingsley Amis. He has been a... Um, uh, an English don at Cambridge, and um, the, he's decided that he's going to make the break and he's going to write full time and he's going to go out to Mallorca and they're going to have a lovely little house and it's a whole new life. And suddenly, Jane comes in this, and he falls absolutely head over heels in love with her. Of that, I have no doubt. Anyway, well, you can imagine, it's all a disaster. And um, he leaves his wife and his children and goes off with Jane. And they, uh, and at first, at first it's, and it, I mean, I think Hillary, his wife, his first wife, 
I think she underwent some terrible um, breakdown because at one point she actually, she just sends the two boys, Martin and Philip, off to London, more or less with a note saying, right, you can look after them. And she stays behind in Mallorca with, with her daughter. She was a good stepmom, wasn't she? <clears throat> uh, Jane, yes. she was, she was. And Martin Amis says that, you know, he really wouldn't have got educated if it hadn't been for her. And I said, Martin, that can't be right. You know, you're a bright lad, you'd got yourself educated. He said, you know, I really don't think so. You know, between the sex, the drugs and the rock and roll, why should I have got myself educated? She was the one who sort of dragged me by the ears and got him into this crammer. So she was, she was a very good stepmom. Because, I mean, she, they always had guests at the house and, oh, and she was always providing really good meals and driving right. the kids to school. So she turned herself into a sort of kitchen martyr because it was an enormous house they had uh, in Hadley Common in the north of London, sort of almost countryside. It had an enormous garden. It was a huge house. And what happened was she was always... They both, both she and Kingsley, loved entertaining. But what that meant was that uh, everybody would go off to the pub with Kingsley, where he would hold court, leaving Jane to make lunch for 12. And being Jane, she could never make life easy for herself. So instead of putting out, you know, a whole lot of ham and baked potatoes and... Uh, some salad. No, it had to be the blanquette de veau and followed by, you know, the sort of magnificent pudding and, you know, all the trimmings. And so, of course, she sort of wore herself to a raveling doing this. And, um, but it was, she did sort of, partly she was, you know, digging a hole and digging deeper. And the, he was drinking. He, he had a thirst. He, he had a thirst. He had a thirst. I mean, he, she did say that he was the most disciplined writer she had ever met. He would sit down in the morning and he would write. And then, uh, that's right, there were Bloody Marys at about 11 o'clock, one or two of them. And then with lunch, there was beer. And then uh, he would go on working in the afternoon. And then at 5.30, shot down tools, and that was the first drink, and then he would pretty well drink all the way through until he went to bed at around midnight. And by the end, he was drinking about a bottle of whiskey a night. And, uh, and that really, I think it sort of exacerbated um, the, the, the kind of dislike, the hatred, because there are portraits in his late novels in Girl 20 and in one or two others, and of course Stanley and the Women above all, uh, where there are absolutely terrifying portraits of Jane, caricatures of her. Um, in some ways very unfair, but you felt that this was a man who, I think the whiskey had stripped him of a skin or two. You know, he's sort of hypersensitive to voices, to things. So he probably drank in order to dull all that, but actually, of course, it only makes it worse. Anyway, by the end, he really hated her. They could hardly bear to be in the same room with her. But she left him, so I mean... That she was left him, but then he writes her a letter saying, you know... You're pretty, pretty good hell to live with, but you know, living without you is even worse. When are you coming back? That's because he'd, he'd lost his housekeeper. Yes, exactly, he had. <laughs> and he couldn't, he couldn't drive, he couldn't cook, he couldn't do anything no. without her. And so, as Martin said, you know, he, he and his brother, Philip, had to, it wasn't babysitting, it was dad sitting. He couldn't be alone at night. And, can we just finish this briefly? What happened next? What Hillary, happened next? Hillary came back. 
Henry. To Hillary. Uh, uh, oh, Hillary. Hillary, sorry. Hillary. Hillary came back. That's right. So Hillary came back. And in the end, Jane, who had left him, who was always desperate for, you know, um, male companionship, sees Kingsley back in the bosom of his family, as it were. Hillary has married again. And, um, and he calls her mum for the rest of his life. <laughs> She looks after him, his first wife, yeah. The, the English are a breed apart, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, right, we, we're coming up towards the, before we have questions, just, just briefly, um, uh, you said in the introduction to Elizabeth David that you were very grateful for the second eye of your husband. Yes. And I wondered whether you provide the second eye for his work, too. I do, yes, I do. We both sort of edit the, the big pieces of work, never leave the house without one of us. Uh, the other one, I mean, having, having seen it. Fantastic. And you wrote uh, Paris after the liberation together. We did. Yep. And uh, would you like to just briefly yes, talk well, about that experience? Yes, well, originally, Paris after the liberation was going to be... Uh, I was going to do that book, and it was going to be sort of based on the, uh, the book I'd written about Cairo in the war. And this was going to be um, Paris after the liberation, sort of between about 1945 and 49. And uh, at that point... And it, the liberation of Paris, it was actually 44, the book had to be ready for the 50th anniversary of the liberation. And I suddenly realized that I was going to have to deliver a book and a baby in the same year. And um, thank heavens, Anthony had just finished a book, so he was able to come in uh, with me. And it obviously made it a far, far better and stronger book as a result. Um, I, he found out some extraordinary things, especially in the um, archives in Moscow, about what was going on in the French Communist Party. And I did all the sort of frivolous stuff and um, did the interviews with sort of fairly amazing, quite scary people like Diana Mitford. Um, it was a hotbed of, of political... <laughs> torturous, uh, sort of, um, with de Gaulle, you know. Oh, absolutely, right yes, at the beginning. yes. I mean, uh, and my poor grandfather, who was ambassador to Paris at that time, he felt he was sort of being ground between the two millstones of um, Churchill and de Gaulle, who my grandmother uh, always used to call General de Gaulle Charlie Wormwood, <laughs> as in Wormwood and Gaulle, because um, he was very difficult to talk to, as you can imagine. Oh, my goodness. I mean, um, yes, and Cairo, too. I thought that your book on Cairo was fantastic. The, the influence of the British between the wars. I mean, Cairo was a very sexy place, wasn't it? It, just... it was. Well, open cities. I mean, you had this enormous battle going on in the Western Desert. And um, Cairo was an open city, but feeling its vulnerability. I mean, you, got, you went back there for sort of rest and relaxation. Um, but, you know, as the Germans came closer and closer in 1942, everyone began to feel very, very jumpy indeed. But it was a place, I think, full of young people. There were a lot of uh, women who come out as secretaries and cipherines. And uh, then men came out on leave. And there was always this thing of, you know, he may not be here next week. And, you know, well, buttons had a way of coming undone, you know, in places like that. <laughs> and you uh, were in Cairo with VSO, weren't you? I was in Alexandria. Right. I, was, I, I worked in Alexandria. And it was lovely. I mean, Cairo and Alexandria, actually, it, you sort of go from one to the other. Um, 
But it was very good fun. I was, I was a rotten teacher, but I loved being in Egypt. Yes. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.